Good morning, everyone. Uh, We're continuing looking at the kings of Israel and Judah. Um, So when John sent out the emails to the people who were going to talk these next three months, he told me I'm going to do Jeroboam the first, and then later on do Hoshea and Zedekiah. (laughs) So I forgot now. What's his name again? Um, So, oh, oh. That's good. I like those. Um, Kings is a book that actually I teach on quite a lot um, most years. And so, um, and Jeroboam is, is one of these kind of, I find him one of the most fascinating figures in Israel's history. Um, because, as I have there, the what if king. He's one of the biggest, I think, what if people in the Bible. Because he had everything set up for him to be a great king. I mean, a really great king. Um, He's chosen by God. The situation was set up right. He was a hero. He wasn't just chosen by God. He was a hero of the people. He was a person who stood up for injustice. Um, He was seemingly (laughs) a really great guy who had a great setup. And yet, he's counted as one of the great failures of Israel's history. Um, so I think he's got a, such an interesting life as a character as well as a, as a person in Israel's history that I think there's a lot that we can learn from him about. He's one of the great examples. It doesn't really matter how you start something. Um, you could be the best person and the best setup and have everything given to you on a plate, yet you can make a huge mistakes and end very, very badly. Um, there are other people in the story who have exact opposite. Um, who, who begin very, very, very badly, um, but end great. Um, but he's one of those ones that begins great and ends badly. Um, so when, when John told me I was going to do these, I thought, okay, um, Jeroboam the first, I can do that. And then I have to do Hashir and Zedekiah. I thought, well, um, so that's the last two kings, the last king of Israel, Hashir, and the last king of Judah, Zedekiah. Um, but they're not living at the same time. They're about 150 years apart and very different situations. So the first thing that popped in my head um, was this book, Plutarch's Lives. And this, Plutarch was a Roman um, author, if you don't know about him. And what he did, he wrote a series of biographies of people from the classical age. Um, but he, way, the way he did it, he, he wrote them in couplets. So he took a character from the Greek world and then a character from the Roman world, which he thought were very similar, either in temperament or situation, or they made the same mistakes, or they made the same successes. And he kind of wrote these series of couplets, like a Greek figure and then a Roman figure side by side. So I thought, oh, I can do that. I can do that for um, Hoshea and Zedekiah. I can have uh, a, a Jewish figure and an Israelite figure side by side and compare them. That will be a fun sermon to prepare. And then um, it suddenly occurred to me, because um, sometimes I'm quite slow on the uptake and my memory isn't the best, as, as my dear wife can tell you. Um, or as my, as my dad says it, my forgettery is getting better. Um, <laughs> I suddenly remembered that I actually do this already. <laughs> and, and I actually do this with Jeroboam. Um, whenever I teach kings and I talk about Jeroboam, I do that exact thing. 
I look at Jeroboam in comparison with another figure from Israel's history. And I help explain his life by comparing him to someone else. Because there's another person in Israel's history whose life actually mirrors Jeroboam's. I suppose you should, could say Jeroboam's life mirrors him because he came first. Um, and they start off very similar. And their way to power and the way God speaks to them and the way they become king is remarkably similar. But then they go off on two complete different directions. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning is compare these two figures. And it's Jeroboam and the other guy is, of course, David. So I'm going to look at the lives of David and Jeroboam in comparison and contrast because they, have, they do mirror each other. I suppose, I think I've called him Jeroboam before, the anti-David, because he's the opposite. Where, like I said, he could have been so much more. Um, if you like, he could have been the David of the north. He could have been just like David, but for the Israelite tribes, not the southern tribe, the northern Israelite tribes. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, but first... A little bit of background. So the background to Jeroboam's story is actually overlaps what John was talking about last week because it's happening at the same time, of course, and completely connected to, to Rehoboam. Um, and it starts back with Solomon. Now, there's, there's really kind of two ways, two perspectives you can look at Solomon's reign. One's good and one's not so good. Um, the good one is if you kind of look at it from the big picture and Solomon's perspective. And that's good. From the big picture, as you see on the map, this is the kingdom that Solomon inherited from David. And it's actually the only time in their history as one united kingdom, um, the Israelites held the entire promised land. So all of the land that God promised Abraham David conquered it all um, and then gave that to Solomon when, when David died. So from the border of Egypt right the way up to the river Euphrates, all of it was ruled by Solomon. This huge, well, huge in comparison to what it is normally, huge, not huge in comparison to everything around it. Um, so he had the complete promised land. Now, the reason that's really significant is because the complete promised land contains a couple of very important things. And those are those, I don't know if you can see them on this map, those little red lines going up and down. And they are trade routes. And two, the two of the most important trade routes in the ancient world ran through the promised land. And most of the time, the Israelites weren't powerful enough to control them. But during David and Solomon's reign, because they had the whole land, they had complete control of these trade routes all the way from the Euphrates all the way to Egypt. Practically speaking, if you were in Asia and you wanted to get to Egypt, you had to go through the Promised Land. If you were in um, Europe, and you didn't fancy a sea journey because it was dangerous, then the way you got to Egypt was through the Promised Land. Again, if you were in Egypt, if you wanted to trade with Europe and Asia, 
you had to go through the promised land. Um, so God was very particular on the land that he promised them. He actually promised them the most important piece of real estate in the ancient world. Because if you own this slice of land, you control the trade, the communication of the ancient world. You're right at the heart of it. And that's why Solomon was the greatest king. Because he was, he was the richest because he had control of these trade routes. So he could, car, he could charge taxes and custom to anyone wanting to trade through his nation. Um, and, of course, with trade becomes communication, becomes influence. And the reason why I think God was so interested in trade is because he knew if everybody traded with Israel, all the nations of the world would hear about him. That was the idea. Um, Israel was meant to be this strategic trade center of the ancient world so that through Israel, all of the nations could hear about God because that was Israel's job, to be the priestly nation. And for a while, it was looking like it was working under David and Solomon. He made the situation even more advantageous to Israel by a couple of alliances. He allied himself with Egypt and got a wife out of it. Um, And Pharaoh became his father-in-law. And they also made a a big alliance with Phoenicia, which was the biggest sea-trading nation of the world. And that made Solomon even more rich, made Israel even more powerful, even more influential, because there was more wealth coming in. And from the religious side, that meant there was more influence going out. And there was Yahweh, the talk of Yahweh was spreading more around the world because of what Solomon was doing in terms of trade, power, and influence. So on that side, it's all good for Israel. On the big picture, it's all good. But of course, what John mentioned last week, if you go down to the details and the life of the average, everyday person of the tribes of Israel, it wasn't so good. And when you look at Solomon as an individual, it wasn't so good for him either. Because as you read in in Solomon's story, which is the background of um, Jeroboam's, you discover that this great king begins very close to God, but over his life drifts further and further away. And, And if you remember what Jesus said in Matthew a couple of times, he talks, he sum, if you remember when he sums up the entire Old Testament, when the scribe comes to him and says, what is the greatest commandment? And so Jesus gives him two. Love Yahweh, your, your God, with all your heart, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the, and he says, that basically sums up the entire Old Testament. Love God, love your neighbor. And that's what Israel was meant to be. That was the main message. But if you don't love God and you don't love your neighbor, you commit two sins. And these two sins are the main, was the main problem of Solomon's life, but also the main problem of Israel's life over the centuries. And that was idolatry and injustice. Because if you don't love God with all your heart, you're replacing others. You put other idols in the way. And if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, that breeds injustice. And this is what we see in Solomon's life. Um, Solomon, he married all these different foreign women because of trade and because of um, 
political reasons, which meant there was a foreign influence in Jerusalem's court, um, a, a big foreign influence because he had many, many wives. And it seems that he, he kind of wanted to keep them happy. And, and one of the ways he kept them happy was allowing them to worship their own gods. And even going so far as to building temples and building shrines for them. Which meant you had an idolatrous influence right in the heart of the royal family of David and Jerusalem. And it seems as, they, as Solomon's life went on, he, he went from just allowing this to happen to actually taking part. And by the end of Solomon's reign, he's actively worshipping other gods. He was probably still worshipping Yahweh because what you see in the story is that the Israelites never really stop worshipping God. It's just they worship a load of other gods alongside. Um, so idolatry was a big problem in Solomon's life. But also, as John mentioned last week, injustice was as well. He had this vast um, building program and he didn't have enough money for it. Israel was rich, but it wasn't that rich. He also had this vast court. He had this huge harem. He had all these wives and concubines. He had an army, the, Israel's first standing army that needed to be paid and fed. Um, he had all these civil servants running around the country organizing. They needed to be paid and fed. He had a lot of expenses, and he didn't have enough money or resources. So the people paid, and they paid a lot not just in terms of money and food and animals, but also in people. Um, he instituted forced labor, where the tribes had to give a certain amount of people each month to go and work on his building projects. Um, so there was injustice. The people were oppressed, even though in the big picture it looks great for Israel, for a normal Israelite, the end, certainly the end of Solomon's reign was not a very good time. And the people were oppressed by Solomon. And so, Solomon faced God's punishment. And because of these two huge sins in his life, God declares to him, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. But because of your father David, I'm not going to do it whilst you're alive. Because I liked your dad so much, I'm going to wait. So you won't lose the kingdom, but your son, your heir, will only have one tribe. He will lose most of the kingdom, but only one tribe will be given to him. And at the same time, he sends the prophet Ahijah to Jeroboam, who's actually working for Solomon. He's actually, one of his jobs is to organize this forced labor. He's one of Solomon's civil servants. And Ahijah says to, what he does, he takes a new garment and he rips it up into 12 pieces. And he gives 10 to, to Jeroboam and says, I'm going to give you 10 tribes. So at the same time, Solomon is told, your, your son is only going to get one. And Jeroboam is told, you're going to get 10. So that's the punishment. Then quickly, because John covered this last week, you have Solomon dies, the new king Rehoboam, the people come to Rehoboam and say, get rid of this injustice that your, that your father put upon us. 
and we will love you and we will serve you and everything will be happy. Um, it's interesting, it's Jeroboam who leads the tribes. So he's been kind of, obviously, God has told him you're going to be king. And actually the people as well turn to Jeroboam. He's their hero. He's been fighting against Solomon. He's been fighting against injustice. So they turn to this charismatic leader. You go to the king for us. You represent us. You be our spokesperson. Rehoboam takes the advice of the younger advisors and says, if you think Solomon was hard, wait till you get a load of me. I'm the boss. You do exactly what I say. And because of that, the tribes say they reject him. And also, they reject the line of David. They reject the house of David. Um, 1 Kings 12, 16, What portion do we have in you, David? To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So basically saying, David's line, you just deal with yourself. We reject you. We, you are not our kings anymore. We are not under the line of David anymore. You just look after yourself. And then the tribes then make their spokesperson king. So Jeroboam, as God predicted, became king of Israel. And what you get is this. The kingdom splits into two. The southern kingdom, which is usually called Judah, and the northern kingdom, which usually from now on is called Israel. And you get the tribes in the south and the tribes in the north. Judah, of course, is David's tribe, so that's there. The one that is given to him is probably talking about Benjamin, um, because Benjamin also becomes a part of this kingdom. And at this point, Simeon doesn't really exist anymore. It's been swallowed up into Judah, so it's technically in the south. And what happens later means that the Levites also come to the south um, because of what happens in the north. But all the rest, and if you, if you count Manasseh as two, because they split into two at this point, it does equal ten. Um, it's never as simple as the twelve tribes of Israel. <laughs> it's, it is actually the fourteen tribes of Israel, but it's only really ever twelve. But there's fourteen. Um, it's complicated, but... <laughs> It's all because of a highly dysfunctional family that is based upon. Okay, so that's the kind of the background. This is how Jeroboam becomes king. It's because of Solomon. It's because of the sin of Solomon that Jeroboam becomes king. And he now becomes the king of the northern tribes of Israel. And, but, but because of that promise that God made to David, the southern kingdom remains. There is a southern kingdom there is a kingdom that David's son rules. Okay, so these are the guys I'm going to compare. David and Jeroboam. Obviously, there's the famous, I'm sure that David in real life wore more clothes than the, <laughs> the, the David statue. Um, um, that's, I think, the only, one of the very few paintings that exists of Jeroboam. Of course, if you do a Google image search of Jeroboam, what you mostly see is bottles of champagne. Um, but I did find, I think that's him because he has his arm withered by the prophet and that kind of thing. So I think that's a picture of the altar at Bethel. Okay, so I said that these two guys are very similar. As you, 
As you probably can, as I was saying the background of Jeroboam, you might have thought that actually does sound a little similar to David. Because their, their rise to power is almost identical. Um, obviously, they are not born to be king. Um, they are not a prince. They don't grow, grow up as a prince. There is a genuine ruler of Israel when these people are alive. For David, of course, it's Saul. And for Jeroboam, it's Solomon. And interestingly, both of them serve that king. So they're both connected to the court. And like I said, Jeroboam was one of the civil servants of Solomon. David had many jobs for Saul. He was a general, he was a champion, and he was a court musician as well. Um, But he worked for Saul. Both of their kings have major sin in their lives, and both of their kings disobey God and the covenant. And the punishment for these kings are the same. You're going to lose your kingdom. Actually, essentially, your son is going to lose the kingdom because both of them die as king of their kingdom, but their line doesn't continue as ruling the whole thing. Which means that both David and Jeroboam are not really anointed because they're amazing, which they might be, but they're actually anointed because somebody else is bad. They are anointed king because their genuine king has sinned. David is anointed king because Saul fails. Jeroboam is anointed king because Solomon fails. And they're both anointed by a prophet, whilst their real king is still alive. So it's almost like God says, well, there is a king, but from now on, in my mind, he's not the real king. Because the anointing, that was the coronation. I mean, even with our own coronation, the most holy private part of the coronation is when the monarch is anointed, because we take that tradition from, from Israel still. Uh, so it was the anointing of the, that made you the king. I mean, that's what the name means, Messiah, the anointed one. Um, so they are declared to be king whilst their king <laughs> is still alive for both of them. Now, because of this, the is not very happy. And both of these men, Saul and Solomon, end up trying to kill and chase David and Jeroboam. And they have the same reaction as well. David runs away to a good bunch of Gentiles, the Philistines, to hide from Saul. And then Jeroboam runs away to a bunch of Gentiles, the Egypt, Egyptians, to hide from Solomon. So you can see, like step by step, how they became king is basically identical. A really fascinating part of this is the covenants that God makes of them. There is like this kind of hidden covenant in the story of Israel, um, which potentially could have been just as important as the others, but didn't because of what the person who was given to reacted. You have the Jeroboam covenant, the covenant that Yahweh makes with Jeroboam, and it's remarkably similar to David's. And we we still talk about David's covenant because obviously Jesus is a manifestation of that. But... In the story right then, it's potentially just as important as the covenant that God makes with David. The covenant that God made with David is, I'm going to build you a house. 
what he means by that is, I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a line. A line of kings is going to come from you, David. And that house, that dynasty, and your kingdom will last forever. There will always be a son of David ruling in Jerusalem. There will always be your kingdom. Jeroboam, God promised Jeroboam that he will reign over all his heart desires. That's a nice promise. (laughs) And he he says, I am going to build you a sure house, using similar language that he uses with David. I will build you a sure house as I built one for David. Just like I promised this dynasty to David, I'm going to build one like that for you, Jeroboam. I'm going to give Israel to you. You see, God is setting Jeroboam up as the David of the north. The David of the south is David. (laughs) But now God is realizing there's a split in the kingdom, so the northern tribes, they need their David too. And that's going to be Jeroboam. So from that perspective, it's great. It's just the same. Yet if you look at the legacy of these two kings, they're hugely different. What you get in the book of Kings, you get these repeated phrases. Every time there's a good king in Judah, it says, they did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh as David his father had done. But every time you get an evil king in Israel, it says, they walked in the ways of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. So David becomes the standard by which you judge a good king. A king is good if he's like David. But Jeroboam becomes the standard of an evil king. If you you are like Jeroboam, you are bad. So they start off in the same place, but you have these huge, two huge different legacies from these guys. And the question is, Why? What happened to Jeroboam, the new David, that made him the anti-David? Completely different. Well, if you look at their stories, the answer is worship. What differentiates these two men is what they did for Israel's worship. Because both of them radically changed the way Israel worshipped Yahweh. And actually, when it came to worship, both kings had a problem. David's problem was there was no real functioning tabernacle with the ark in. Um, it never got off the ground again after the tabernacle was destroyed at Shiloh um, back in Eli's time. And the process, the whole system of, of worshipping Yahweh had never got back to where it's supposed to be. The ark was living in somebody's house, not in the tabernacle. The worship and festivals were therefore not happening as they should have happened. And people were worshipping God all the way around the country in, in older places of religious worship called high places. God was still being worshipped, but he wasn't being worshipped in one place in one way as the Torah said he was supposed to be. So that was David's problem. Jeroboam's problem was his new kingdom has split from the south. And that means the place of religious worship for his kingdom was now in another country. 
his priesthood and the Levites that, that, uh, that controlled, that son organized and ran his religion were based in the capital city of another country. Normal festivals and normal worship for Israelites now would have to take place in a country that they were at war with. But that's a big problem, isn't it? It's like you're at war with a country that actually holds the center of your religious worship. And technically, you're supposed to go to the, your, this enemy capital city every year and worship, in fact, do festivals. And also, of course, since David's time, the whole temple, the whole worship system was now thoroughly intertwined with the house of David. The house of God and the house of David went hand in hand. And, Sol- and Jeroboam was rightly afraid, not only is this a country is war with, what if his people go south, go to the festivals and think, hang on, we made a mistake. This is where we're supposed to be. Look, the temple's here, the ark is here. We shouldn't have rejected the house of David. So Jeroboam not only has a religious problem, he also has a political problem. Because the tribes might be tempted to go back to David if they go to Jerusalem to the festivals. David's solution is to bring the ark to Jerusalem, to set up the tabernacle in Jerusalem, to reorganize the Levites and reorganize the festivals, not just in the way that they are in the Torah, but actually make them grander. He's the first king that actually tells reorganizes the Levites. Levites, you don't just carry things and clean things now, you also sing. You also play musical instruments. So he reorganizes the Levites into choirs, into musicians, and actually what we now think of as worship starts with David. They didn't really, they occasionally sang, and they occasionally blow trumpets before him, but now worship is not just sacrifice, worship is now singing, Worship is now dancing. Worship is now playing musical instruments. And of course, the key, like the keystone of his entire plan was actually to build a physical stone temple instead of the tabernacle. That that Yahweh would actually have a genuine house to live in, not a tent anymore. Tent, that was for the desert. That was for wandering. We've got a capital city now. We're in one place. We need a stone temple. Jeroboam's solution was actually to return to a form of God, Yahweh worship, before David. An earlier form of worship. And what he did is establish new, two new centers of worship at old places where Yahweh has been worshipped for centuries. The most famous being at Bethel is where um, Jacob wrestles with God and where he meets God. And another one in Dan. He also builds two golden calves. He doesn't have an ark anymore. He doesn't have the box where God lives. So instead, he builds these golden calves to represent God at these two shrines. The Levites and the priesthood are thoroughly connected with Jerusalem and David, so he creates a new priesthood and a new Levite system and a new festival system to separate from Jerusalem. That's his solution. David, when he's made his plan, what he does is gets Nathan, the prophet, and says, this is my plan. Talk to God. 
Does he approve? Inquire of Yahweh. Jeroboam's action is, this is my plan. I'm going to do it. And he does it. And this is where you see the two difference between these two men. David's first instinct, I've got a huge plan that will change Israel. God needs to be involved. Nathan, does Yahweh approved? Jeroboam, I've got a big plan that will change Israel. I'm the king. I'm going to do it. And these are the two shrines, one right in the north of the kingdom and one right in the south. Bethel is actually only a couple of miles from Jerusalem. It's right on the border. Yahweh's response through Nathan to David is, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Your line will rule forever, and your heir, your son, he will complete your plans. He will build a temple for me to live in. I like your idea, David, but I don't like your timing. It's not now, and I don't want you to do it. I want your son to do it. The prophet's response to Jeroboam, you have not been like David. You have made gods and images in a way that I told you you shouldn't. You have done evil and you have cast me behind your back. I will cut off your house. David, your house will rule forever. Jeroboam, I will cut off your house. So the big difference between these two men is when it came to their leadership, David leads the people into this greater and more awesome and more participatory form of worshipping of Yahweh. And because of this, he becomes the standard of good kings from now on. Because of his loyalty to God, even if his his descendants disobey God, His tribe always survive. Today, who do we talk about? The Jews. Why are they called Jews? Because they are from Judah. They are from David's tribe. David's loyalty meant, God said, your people will always survive. They will always be Jews because of what he did. And of course, his son still reigns. Jesus is the ultimate son of David, the ultimate heir of David, who reigns forever. Jeroboam, on the other hand, he leads his people into a polluted form of Yahweh worship, a corrupted form of worshipping God. And so he becomes the standard of evil kings from now on. The tribes that were given to him, where are they today? What do we talk about? The lost tribes of Israel. The tribes that were given for Jeroboam to be his responsibility are all gone. And from a personal level, his heir, the heir of Jeroboam, lasted one generation. His dynasty, there was two. Him and his son, gone. So that is these two men, 
But what about us? What about our lives? What does that say about our grand plans? I was talking to someone the other day about sometimes I think we may take asking God about things to a bit of a ridiculous extreme. Um, Sometimes God, I think, wants us to use our brain and and the Bible he's given us to make decisions, godly decisions. If we know him, we will make decisions based on his character. I don't think we have to ask God for every <laughs> decision every day. Um, God, what, what trousers shall I put on this morning? Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, even some important things, I think God is very willing for us to make the decision because he wants us to use our brain and he wants us to follow in his ways and for us to make that decision. But of course, this is talking about a major decision that's going to affect not just David and Jeroboam, but their entire country. So when it comes to our own plans, our own big plans, do we involve God? Um, do, are we, now, of course, both of these men made a plan and then went to God, which I think is interesting, or not go to God. Um, so do we take our desires, do we take what we want to do of our lives in big picture important stuff and say, God, what do you think? Is this a good idea? Do we involve him in major decisions or do we act like Jeroboam and say, and just go ahead and do it and then face the consequences later? Worship. Worshipping God in ways that he doesn't want to be worshipped isn't worship. If God says, this is how you worship me, that's how we worship it. Um, I think, of course, our worship should in some ways reflect who we are, the way we, the way we sing, the way we act. It should reflect our personalities because it's our worship. And, of course, David's worship did reflect his personality. He was a guy who liked to dance. He was a guy who wrote poems. He was a guy who played musical instruments. So what did he do? He introduced a form of worship that involved playing musical instruments, writing poems, singing, dancing. So it did reflect who David was. But it didn't contradict God's plan of worship. It added to it. It made it greater, bigger. But it wasn't going against what God has said is worship, whereas Jeroboam's was. Jeroboam is basically, God, we're going to worship you like everybody else. We're going to worship you like the other nations worship their gods. So in our own lives, what does our worship look like? Is our worship, yes, is our worship a marriage of God's word and our own personality, or does it have another source? We talk a lot about today is worship sometimes seems to have become entertainment rather than worship. And I wonder if there's a bit of Jeroboam in that, that we've taken something of the world in that sense and brought it into worship, that worship just becomes a stage and an entertainment. And I, I want to be careful with that because there's a lot of it, you know, you want to do a good job, you want to be professional, you want to worship God in the best way, but... It does make me wonder sometimes how far we take that. Is that a bit Jeroboamy? Um, but also when it comes to our own relationship with God, our own covenant with God, our covenant with Jesus, 
Um, it's interesting. If you think of David and, and Jeroboam, David, David's covenant with God shaped his circumstances. Jeroboam's covenant with God was shaped by his circumstances. Like he let what was happening to him dictate what his relationship with God was like. But what David did was let his relationship with God affect and change what was happening to him. And so how do, are we similar? Do we let our own circumstances dictate the way we relate to Jesus? Or do we let the way we relate to Jesus affect and change our own circumstances? Of course, our choices. It's the major, this, this major decision that these two men made that makes them different. If you think about it, their rise to power was almost identical. Their covenant with Yahweh was almost identical. Their potential was exactly the same. Yet their decisions as king made them two very, very different people. Again, it's talking about, it's not about how we begin, it's how we end. It's where we're going. Just to end, the encouragement, I think, is to not walk in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but to do what is right in the eyes of Yahweh, to do as David, your father, has done. David, to be like David, not to be like Jeroboam. To be a man or a woman who, like David has said, is someone who is after God's own heart. To be like David, a worshipper in spirit and truth. And to be like David, someone who loves God's word. David wrote many, many psalms. And we all know the biggest psalm he wrote. Psalm 119. Do you know what Psalm 119 is about? It's David's love letter to the Torah. The largest piece of poetry he put down was how much he loves the word of God and how he lives by it day by day and how it's part of his being. So my encouragement for myself and for you (laughs) is let's be like David. And if there's one thing we can learn from our friend Jeroboam is do not be like him. (laughs) If there's one thing that Kings teaches you, do not walk in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but walk in the ways of your father, David. Amen.